Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about the book of Ezekiel. Now we have one week to do Ezekiel, which is a long, very beautiful, but very complicated book. And don't get lost in it. There's a lot of rabbit holes to go down. But don't lose sight of the major overall message of Ezekiel to see the nature of God in punishment. We need to understand this is where God sends them into captivity and destroys the temple. And we need to turn it and see God in punishment, because there is a great lesson to be learned about his nature and who we are and our connection to him when we, like Israel, have to go into captivity for our own deeds. I think that's one of the most important things I have pulled out of the book of Ezekiel, is to understand the nature of God in punishment. The second thing about Ezekiel is such glorious hope for the future. We are the hope that they saw. And so Israel is a valley of dry bones, but will it live again? Yes. And she will rise again and be a great army. And she will have in her hand the stick of Judah. And she will do wonderful things again. So we're going to see a vision of us and the glorious temple restored and the beauty of what that temple is going to do again and especially in the latter days. So those are kind of the two themes I would have you watch for, is what do we learn about God when he sends Israel into captivity and destroys the temple? And what is this message of hope that things are going to come back and be better and glorious again? But let's do a little history, because we need to know where Ezekiel fits. This is unlike Jeremiah, who is still in Jerusalem, pleading the cause for Judah to come back and be restored, because there's still hope of avoiding the calamity. But by Ezekiel, that's not the case, right? So this is where God sends them into captivity and destroys the temple. Yeah. The book starts in 593 BC, and that's the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. That's verse two of chapter one. And we read in the text that Ezekiel is a prophet that lives in Babylon. He lives with the first group of exiles. If you remember, we talked about this with Jeremiah, that in 598 BC, there's a group of people that are deported to Babylon. And in this group is Ezekiel. And my take on this is Ezekiel's probably connected to the king. He probably works with the king's family. We think that about 3,000 members of the household of the king were taken captive into Babylon. And Ezekiel was probably with that group. So Ezekiel's message is a wrestling. He's really wrestling with problems posed by the tragedies of Jerusalem's destruction and the Babylonian exile. He asks questions like this, why did God allow the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed? Why did God allow the people of Israel to be carried away captive into Babylon? And then also he asks, okay, what's our future? Now that we're captive, now what? What are we supposed to do? Now, this book really covers the period of of a priest service for about 20 years. So Ezekiel is both a priest and a prophet, and his writings are best understood as a combination of these aspects of his identity. As a priest of the house of Zadok, 
And if, if you remember, Zadok was appointed by Solomon as the high priest of Jerusalem. If you go back to First Kings 2, Ezekiel calls upon his own background to make his case. What he's going to do is he's going to see the future of Jerusalem encapsulated in the idea of the temple, which is what his priestly role is associated with. And so as a priest and a prophet, he's going to give oracles that are apocalyptic in nature, but he's also going to couch them in the language of the temple of his time period. Modern scholars generally see that the book falls into largely three parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 24, are going to be oracles of judgment against Jerusalem and Israel. And then when you go to chapter 25, chapter 25 to 32 are oracles of judgment against the nations. And we read those earlier when we read oracles against the nations that Isaiah gave and Jeremiah. Those chapters, 25 through 32, are skipped and come follow me. And then finally, from chapter 33 to the end of his book, chapter 48, Ezekiel gives prophecies or oracles for Jerusalem and Israel as the center of the world, and it's filled with images of gathering and of apocalyptic visions of things being put back together. And a lot of the things that Ezekiel is doing are connected to writings of John in the book of Revelation. I think that John probably had some of the same visions. The first three chapters, really, of Ezekiel are his call as a prophet, and it is filled with what many consider to be bizarre images. And very detailed. I mean, the description of these images is incredible, unlike you're going to find in other prophets. But the overall message is that God is with his people, even though they are in captivity. Yeah. And so with that as kind of a brief background, let's look at chapter 1. We read that he's a priest in the third verse. In verse 4, we read, I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, out of the midst of fire, and out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance, and they had the likeness of a man. And then it gets into four aspects of this creature we have in verse 10. And the likeness of their faces, the four had the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And it's very difficult to read and try to make sense of these things. And then inside this, we have the appearance of wheels in the 15th and 16th verse. We have, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures. The appearance of the wheels and their work was likened to the color of beryl. And then it goes on, and it talks about a wheel in the midst of a wheel, and then you get to verse 18, and it talks about rings full of eyes, and then it continues with the wheels all the way down, verses 18 through 21. And then you get into verse 22, where he sees the rakia, or the dome over the earth that held back the cosmic waters. It says in verse 22, the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of terrible crystal stretched forth over the heads thereof. And so what do we do with this? There's an artist that did a rendition of this. We were going to put in the slides if you want to take a look at it. Before we even go any further, I just want to read this quote by the prophet Joseph Smith, where he said, I make this broad declaration that whenever God gives a vision of an image or a beast or a figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give a revelation or interpretation of the meaning thereof. Otherwise, we are not responsible or accountable for our belief in it. Don't be afraid of being damned for not knowing the meaning of a vision or a figure if God has not given a revelation or interpretation of this subject. And so at present, the interpretation of the vision has not been given to the church. So 
the Lord is not going to hold us accountable for totally understanding this. Now, as a total language nerd and somebody who loves to nerd out on what's going on in antiquity and how did they view this, I have an opinion of what I think is going on. There's a word in here that's going to be used repeatedly, and that word is the kavod. And that's the word in Hebrew that means heavy, but it also means mighty, but it also means glory. And what we're going to see big picture in the book of Ezekiel is that the kavod of God, his heaviness, his glory, his might is going to leave the temple in Jerusalem and it's going to go east. And my take is that kavod is going with the Jews into captivity, into exile, and that the kavod will come back when they return. And so unlike gods of other ancient Near Eastern countries, which would leave their people and they would abandon them, the God of Israel goes with them. And intermixed in this idea of the kavod are these mighty beasts or these mighty animals. And sometimes they're emblazoned on the throne. Sometimes they're surrounding the throne of God. We see some of this in the book of Revelation where John sees the four beasts and in section 77 where the Lord interprets it and he says, these beasts um, are actual beasts, but they also represent something. Another way to look at this is this is the conception of God's glory. This is from Moshe Weinfeld. He's not a Latter-day Saint, but he has some really interesting things to say about this. Speaking of the kavod, he says, the conception underlying the description of God in his place of habitation as it had crystallized in Israelite priestly theology is patently an anthropomorphic one. Within the inner recesses of the tabernacle, removed and veiled from the human eye, sits the deity enthroned between two cherubim and at his feet rests the ark, his footstool. And so we actually put a depiction of this uh, in the slides, and you can look at it, and it's this image of God, and he's surrounded by these beasts, and sometimes they're emblazoned on his throne. In antiquity, a lot of times the gods were depicted astride mighty beasts, as if they rode them or had dominated them. Perhaps these represent guardians of the throne of God. I think there's lots of ways to view it. And so I just want to submit that as a possibility that some of these things are going on. Now, Mike shared that with me a while ago, and it really has made an impression upon me, that image of the Lord lifting up his presence out of Jerusalem and going east. Let me give you another one of those that is just heartbreaking and yet encouraging at the same time. In the New Testament, the history of the New Testament ends in the book of Acts. So after Acts, we just have epistles, and then we have a vision of John in Revelation. But the history of the New Testament ends in the book of Acts. So if you turn to the very last chapter of Acts, the very last speech of Paul, four verses before the history ends, Paul says in Acts 28, 28, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, that they will hear it. In other words, it's that idea that Paul is announcing that God is lifting up out of Jerusalem and going to the Gentiles because they will hear and they will do his work in the end. And so that's that same idea. And I really think if you relax your eyes a little bit, you can see the Lord shifting from one location to another location as he moves to a people that hear and will obey and he will be their God. And so that's why I love that because of that imagery of the Lord is now shifting away from Jerusalem and following his people into captivity. Now, 
there's a strong indication that part of what he sees in this vision is the divine feminine or heavenly mother. Go to chapter 10 and look at verse 18. Verse 18 reads, Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them. And everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar. And I knew that they were the cherubim. Now here's what's important. In verse 20, He's referring back to his vision, and he says, this is the living creature. And literally, it can be translated as, this is the living creature, but a better translation is, she is the living one, which I saw. That's a more direct translation of the Hebrew. And this is feminine. We have all these feminine aspects. Margaret Barker lays this out, and I've checked her grammar, and so she lays out this argument that Lady Wisdom has left with God. And she writes, this was the lady, as Ezekiel knew her, leaving the temple. And so one way to look at this, the translators, looking at the feminine here, translated out. Instead of she is the living one, they translated it as this is the living creature. So I just submit that as a possibility to look at. But then we read that this is the voice of Shaddai. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, we read this. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech and the noise of an host. When they stood, they let down their wings. In the middle of verse 24, we read that Ezekiel heard the voice of Shaddai, which must have been the name of the living one. The living one that he mentions in chapter 10 is Shaddai. And so if you remember the things that we talked about earlier in Genesis, there's a strong connection that she leaves as well. So that's another way to look at it. I know that this can be kind of strange and kind of different, but knowing at least the way the ancients kind of viewed heaven, knowing how they viewed the rakia, the dome that kind of separated the cosmic waters from the earth, what we see in this vision of chapter one is Ezekiel's brought through that, through that barrier And he sees God and he sees the throne and he sees the glory of God. I think a better translation or maybe one that's more culturally appropriate to our minds is 1 Nephi chapter 1. If you take a really close look at 1 Nephi chapter 1 and you look at Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, I think that will really help you in understanding what's happening here. Now, in the third chapter of Ezekiel, he gets his calling and he's told to eat a book. That's verse 1 and 2. And he eats it. And then in the third verse, he says, I did eat it and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Now, when John has a similar experience, he talks about it being sweet, but then causing his belly to be bitter. And then we read in the 77th section of the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph says, what is that book? And the Lord says, that's his calling. If you've ever had a calling that's sweet and bitter, you know what it's like to be Ezekiel or to be Lehi or to just serve the Lord. It's sweet, but it's also bitter. And in the midst of this experience of seeing the throne of God, Ezekiel kind of learns what he's to do. He's to warn the wicked and to take care of them and and, and be a watchman. And Bryce is going to talk about this, like what do watchmen do? And so before we leave this vision, 
Just know that there's a whole group of historical early Christians and Jews that really dove into this idea of the mystery of God and trying to understand how can we attain or or reach a vision where we can see the throne of God. And I love in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says in section 93, basically the things that we need to do to come into God's presence, and it doesn't need to be a mystery. The Lord lays it out, how we can attain his presence, how we can come to view him. He says, Verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. I love that. So Joseph Smith had a vision of the throne, and he talks about this in the context of his visions in Kirtland. Joseph Smith said, I saw the 12, the apostles of the Lamb who are now upon the earth, who hold the keys of the last ministry in foreign lands, standing in a circle, much fatigued, and their clothes were tattered and their feet were swollen and their eyes were cast downward. And Jesus standing in their midst and they did not behold him. The Savior looked upon them and wept. In the concluding scene of these visions, Joseph Smith apparently watched until the Twelve arrived at the gate of the Celestial Kingdom and found Father Adam acting as a gatekeeper and escort of the faithful to the throne. He, Joseph, saw that they, the Twelve, had accomplished their work and arrived at the gate of the Celestial City. There Father Adam stood and opened the gate to them, and they entered, and he embraced them one by one and kissed them. He then led them to the throne of God, and then the Savior embraced each one of them and kissed them and crowned each one of them in the presence of God. He saw that they all had beautiful heads of hair and all looked alike. The impression this vision left on Brother Joseph's mind was so acute in nature that he could never refrain from weeping while rehearsing it. And that's by Heber C. Kimball. And the reason why I share that is because Joseph's expression of seeing the throne of God and the love that the Savior has for us, I think that really does convey in our culture and our language probably a better interpretation of this experience than these verses which are so culturally foreign to us. But I want to emphasize the same images are there. You've got the bitter and the sweet with the fact that their clothes are tattered and their heads are down, they're sad. You've got the the image of God loving them, the image of the Lord bringing them into his presence. You also have them in a circle. Some of these same images are repeated throughout. So I just like to share First Nephi 1 and that experience by Joseph Smith to kind of bookend this first vision so that it's not so culturally strange. That's fantastic. So now let's jump from those first three chapters. I want to just make brief mention to chapter 9. Um, because this concept of being saved by a mark is going to come up repeatedly in the scriptures. In Egypt, Israel was saved by putting the blood of a lamb on their door. They marked themselves with the blood of the lamb, and the destroying angel passed them by. In Ezekiel chapter 9, there are six angels with slaughter weapons getting ready to destroy the city because of its wickedness. And that's what chapter 8 is. Chapter 8, Ezekiel is taken on a journey to see how wicked Judah has become, and he takes them right into the temple, and you can see why the city needs to be destroyed. It's like reading those latter chapters in the Book of Mormon, where Mormon is describing what's happening in his time, and you know why the Nephites need to be destroyed. They're gross abominations. And then we get to chapter 9, where there are six slaughtering angels, 
and then another angel with a writer's ink horn. And he is asked to go throughout the city and put a mark on the righteous. And then the slaughtering angels are sent in afterwards to destroy everyone who does not have that mark. Do you see that repeated theme? Just like Egypt, that they were passed over and spared if they had the mark on their forehead. The Lord's going to pick that up in Revelation. John and Ezekiel have a lot of similarities. And again in Revelation chapter 6 and 7, as we begin the sixth seal, the work of the sixth seal is to put a mark on the righteous. It's to put a mark on their forehead so that when the four angels of chapter 7 are unleashed and the destruction of our day comes, anyone wearing the mark is spared. If you jump to chapter 9 of Revelation, when the destruction hits, they are told, do not destroy anyone that has the mark on their forehead. In Revelation chapter 14, it will tell us that the mark is the name of the Father. So we really won't go into that in this podcast with Ezekiel, but we did in our discussion of Revelation chapter 7. But I just wanted to point out that in Ezekiel, when Jerusalem was destroyed, a similar thing happened. So we saw the destruction in Egypt, the destruction in Jerusalem, and we will see the destruction of the world at the end, and always the righteous are saved by placing a mark on their forehead. Yeah. So... In 11, he sees the glory leave, or the, the kavod. It leaves Jerusalem. Go to chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lift up their wings, and the wheels beside them, and the glory, or the kavod of the God of Israel, was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Afterward, the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea. Now that's Babylon, to them of the captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. And so one of the things we see here is this idea that there's hope. This vision draws on the ancient Near Eastern tradition in which gods abandon their cities in anger, leaving them to their destruction by another god. But the primary difference here is that Jehovah, rather than another God, brings the destruction himself. Also, note this, that Jehovah does not retire to the heavens or remain with those left behind in Judah. Those left behind are guilty in this book. Here, Jehovah moves east with the exiles who've been spared. And then, the end of the book of Ezekiel relates another vision of the restored temple. We'll see that in the 40s. In this vision, Ezekiel sees the kavod returning from the east. This is what we read in chapter 43. And there coming from the east with a roar like the roar of mighty waters was the presence of the God of Israel. And the earth was lit by his presence. The presence of Jehovah entered the temple by the gate that faced eastward. A spirit carried me to the inner court, and lo, the presence of Jehovah filled the temple. That's chapter 43, verses 2, 4, and 5. Just as the divine presence of God went eastward with the exiles in chapter 8 and chapter 10 of Ezekiel, so it is that the presence will return back because Jehovah is not linked with a place. Rather, he's linked with a people, the people who are of the house of Israel. That's who he's linked with. And I want to just parallel this idea to Mosiah chapter 24. If you go to Mosiah chapter 24, verses 11 through 25, 
we read about the people of Alma and their exiles. They're kind of in this space in between. They're not home, but they're also not in the land of Nephi. This is Alma, the elder who was a priest in the court of King Noah. And what do we read here? We read that they pray because they're in this bondage situation. They're in an exile, and we read that the Lord is with them, and he gives them comfort. In verse 14, it says, I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, even that you cannot feel them upon your backs. And that at the end of verse 14, it says that this is going to be a witness that you may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their affliction. And so to me, this is really important when we read Ezekiel chapter 11. When the glory leaves Jerusalem, it's because the glory of God is with his people. And so wherever they may be, and in this circumstance in the book of Ezekiel, they're in exile, God is aware of them, and he visits them in their afflictions. And so I think that's a really good connection there. So with that, let's go to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 is this allegory of a woman, and it's pretty graphic in the sense of it's a violent image of this young daughter that's cast aside into a field. It says in verse 3, Say, thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. So we have this abandoned child out in a field. It also seems to be indicative of this idea, and there's a lot of speculation and scholarship on this, of the roots of Israelite identity. Were the Israelites actually Canaanites? And my take on this is there probably is some mixture going on here. We know that at least there's this mixture or this syncretic nature of their religion in that the religion of the Canaanites and the religion of the Israelites often was intermingled. But if you also look in chapter 16, verse 45, we read something similar that says, your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. And that's used as a derogatory term to talk about Jerusalem as this daughter that's foreign, and she's left abandoned in a field. And we read in chapter 16, verse 9, that the Lord washed her with water and washed away the blood and anointed her with oil and clothed her with broidered work. And verse 10 kind of has imagery associated with the temple, as well as verse 11 and 12. And so she becomes beautiful. But what happens she leaves. She becomes a an adulterous woman. And that's kind of the middle of this chapter in chapter 16. But at the end of the day, she's very sad and she's alone. And so what happens? Go to the very end of chapter 16, verse 60. I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Verse 62 reads, I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when I am pacified towards thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord. I think a great way to read the ending of this chapter is that even despite what she's done and despite the sins that she's committed, the Lord remembers her. And we're going to see this image again when we get to Hosea. But chapter 16 is a very poignant allegory of the history of Israel, that God has redeemed her when she was born, and he'll redeem her again. And I really see that thread flowing through the Book of Mormon as well. 
So now we get to the great dilemma that Ezekiel has to face and that we have to face when we watch the Lord allow that temple to be destroyed and send his people into exile, and many of them were killed. Why does God punish? Why does he allow these things to happen? What's his motive here? What kind of person is he? Now, the, the problem that we have is that we are surrounded by human beings, and it's common for us to see in human beings that punishment is a means of getting even or exacting revenge. We often see the victims of a horrible crime want to be there when the perpetrator is executed or something, and I don't blame them for doing that, but it kind of sends this message that justice is to punish to get even. You did something really bad, so something really bad has to happen to you. And if God punishes like men punish, Oh, that is a scary thought for our salvation and our personal lives with him. And I think because we see that so common in human beings and why people punish, why nations and governments punish, and even why some parents punish when their motive is to get even or to do something bad because you did something bad— But if we project that onto God, we create a very, very scary situation, and that's going to affect our faith in Him. So let's wrestle with that question. Why does the Lord punish? What's His motive? And that's where Ezekiel has taught me a great deal. I want to stop in chapter 18. Now, we're going to see this in 33, but it's beautifully taught in 18, which is not in Come, Follow Me, but I'd encourage you to read chapter 18 as part of this week's readings. So I'm going to start in verse 19. Yet say ye, why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son hath done that which is right and lawful, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the fathers, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The idea here is their parents did what was unlawful in the sight of God. They defiled their possession, and now the children are in exile. And the Lord is kind of talking about, well, wait a minute, why should the children be punished? And so he picks it up in verse 21, but if the wicked will turn, any child, any adult, any person, if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. And then this absolutely beautiful verse that I would invite you to ponder a great deal this week. God asks this question, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? That verse is gold to me, because what he's saying is the only motive that God has in bringing negative consequences into my life is to help me change and live so that I can receive the blessings. 
He seems to be saying to the children of evildoers, you went into captivity because of your parents' wickedness, but if you will turn to God, you will not be punished because God does not punish the children of evildoers out of revenge. He simply is giving everyone a chance to change. God's motive is pure love and wanting to give us something better. In that sense, let's turn to the restoration. Doctrine and Covenants section 19 is going to correct the idea that some people have that God's punishment is endless, meaning it never ends. Starting in verse 6 of section 19, he says, Nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. Now, that seems to be confusing because he's saying, I never said that punishment never ends, even though it's called endless punishment. The reason it's called endless punishment is verse 10. For I am endless. And the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment, for endless is my name. In other words, it's not endless punishment, it's endlesses punishment. He repeats this two times to make sure we are understanding. It's not eternal in duration It's named eternal punishment because it's God's punishment, meaning it's not what men do. It's not incarceration in prison like men do. It's endless punishment because God's name is endless. It's not eternal punishment. It's eternal's punishment because God is eternal. Now, Elder James E. Talmadge in 1930, so 100 years after the church's birth and organization, Elder James E. Talmadge picks up that idea and says, let me tell you what we've learned in the last 100 years. It's a beautiful talk. It's the April 1930 General Conference. One of the things he mentions that we've learned is the nature of why God punishes. He said, to hell there is an exit as well as an entrance. Hell is no place to which a vindictive judge sends prisoners to suffer and be punished principally for his, meaning the judge's glory. But it is a place prepared for the teaching and the disciplining of those who failed to learn here upon the earth what they should have learned. Now he's going to quote section 19. Eternal punishment is God's punishment, for he is eternal. And that condition or state or possibility will ever exist for the sinner who deserves and really needs such condemnation. But this does not mean that the individual sufferer or sinner is to be eternally and everlastingly made to endure and suffer. No man will be kept in hell longer than is necessary to bring him to a fitness for something better. When he reaches that stage, the prison doors will open and there will be rejoicing among the hosts who welcome him into a better state. End quote. 
Don't you just want to shout hallelujah at that information? The only reason he allows negative consequences to come upon us is to give us a chance to change so that he can then bring the positive consequences upon us and bless us. Let me show you that one more place in the scripture so you can see that this is a glorious message of the restoration. In section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord begins speaking about the resurrection of different groups of people. In verse 29, he mentions the resurrection or the quickening of the celestial. So now we've pulled all the celestial out of the spirit world. In verse 30, we quicken or resurrect the terrestrial. In verse 31, we quicken or resurrect all the telestial. Now that's going to leave a few people still in spirit world. The sons of perdition who did qualify to get a body. They're still in the spirit world. Now listen carefully to verse 32. Speaking of those who will not receive a kingdom of glory, who are suffering in hell in the spirit world while everyone else has been resurrected. Verse 32. And they who remain, meaning non-celestial, not terrestrial, not telestial, they who remain will also be quickened or resurrected. Doctrinal declaration, if anyone was born and came to earth and then becomes a son of perdition, they will at least be resurrected and obtain a resurrected body. They who remain will also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. So what is it that they might have received? Verse 33, for what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which was given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Do you see why they were in hell? Now, some people who end up in the telestial kingdom also went to hell. But do you see implied in verse 32 and 33 what got them out of hell? What got them out of spirit prison was they received the gift. And as soon as they received that gift, the atonement of Christ, the prison doors opened and they got out of their punishment. Bryce, it's almost like the prison door had a handle on the inside. Is almost, you can is, turn it anytime you yeah, want. It seems like if that. If you receive the gift. Now, I just want to shout hallelujah at this doctrine because it teaches me who my father is and what his motives are and that I can testify with all my soul that his only, his purest, his most sincere desire is love. I think we see this beautifully when Jesus is asked to judge the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. He judges that she has violated the law of Moses, and according to the law of Moses, yes, technically she should be stoned. But then he says, none of you are the ones that can stone her. The only person who met his requirement was he himself, and he said, I am not going to stone her. And so when everyone left, here is this moment, this beautiful moment with a sinner standing in front of Christ. Now, I don't know what you have in your head that you expect God to do when you stand before him. I think a lot of people expect to be shamed. I think a lot of people expect God to say, Bryce, I'm so disappointed in all that you did that was wrong. And then there's that shame. 
But this woman has an interaction with Christ. Now look at the JST change on that verse where he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, there is no question that this woman walked away clearly knowing that adultery was not acceptable in the eyes of God and that she needed a change. But if you read that JST change, she went away glorifying God. She was judged by him without having stones thrown at her. She walked away clearly knowing that she needed to change, but she was uplifted by the exchange, not shamed by it. That's what Ezekiel is trying to teach when God sends his people into captivity and destroys the temple, is his nature in punishment. I bear witness of that heavenly father, that his only motive is to give us something better than we're qualifying for with our current actions. Change your behavior so that I can give you something better. Any exchange we would have with God would leave us uplifted, inspired to be better, but clearly knowing what I need to do to make those changes. So now let's jump to 33. Let me show you that he's answering the question he asked in 18. He says that Ezekiel should say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Now, he's going to add a little twist here. First, he says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? And then he adds this idea that past righteousness doesn't work today. You don't get extra credit in your wickedness today because you were righteous in the past. And the opposite of that is also true. You're not going to be punished today for past wickedness, if you turn from that wickedness. So in verse 12, he says, Therefore, son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. You don't get extra credit for past righteousness if you are wicked today. And the opposite is true. For as the wickedness of the wicked he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. You're not going to be punished for yesterday's sins if you turn away from them. That's not how God operates. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust in his own righteousness and then commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt die, if he turn from that sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, then a whole bunch of things that the wicked need to do. Verse 16, none of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right, he shall live. So do you see that idea? If you've been righteous and then you turn away, not just a slip up, I don't think, but if you turn away and decide, I no longer want that righteousness, you don't get extra credit for your past righteousness. And if you've been wicked in the past, the moment you turn from your wickedness, all that past is gone. You won't be punished for past wickedness if you turn from it. 
You know, Bryce, one time someone asked me, how can the Lord not remember your sins? Where it says, I, the Lord, remember them no more. And I thought about that and I thought, well, the Lord remembers, but I think you hit the nail on the head with verse 16. He's not going to mention them. Yeah. They're in the vault. I'm just not going to pull them out and parade them before you. And so 17 is kind of a, well, people complain because, hey, aren't we the Lord's people? Why are you punishing us? They claim that the way of the Lord is not equal, and he's saying, no, 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 your way isn't equal. Excellent. Before we get to chapters 33 and 34 that Come Follow Me covers, I want to talk a little bit about the oracle against Tyre. Chapters 26, 27, and 28 cover the story of Tyre. And Tyre was this merchant city, and it had two really important ports. And in these chapters, Ezekiel basically says that Tyre is going to be overthrown. 26 verse 7 says that I'm going to bring upon Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to come from the north with chariots. Verse 8, he's going to take it. He's going to take the the daughters. He's going to, verse 9, break down the towers. The walls are going to shake. And verse 11, I'm going to slay the people. And then he says twice that I'm going to make thee like the top of a rock. And that image in Hebrew kind of denotes this idea of a scraped rock or a scraped fortress that the sun is shining on, and it doesn't have any people on it. And verse 5 says of chapter 26 that it's going to be a place for the spreading of the nets in the midst of the sea. And so that's the prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and Tyre is going to get wrecked. Now, historically, Nebuchadnezzar tries to do it, but he doesn't. He's not able to get in. And so some people look at this as a failed prophecy of Ezekiel, but the city was taken. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great comes, and it's really fascinating. We'll put the whole story in the show notes because it's much too long for this podcast. But he essentially is on his world tour of domination, and his generals say, don't try to get into Tyre. Nobody can get in. And he's like, well, watch me. So he sends a group of emissaries to the leaders in Tyre, and it's this island city. It's out in the ocean, surrounded by the water, off the coast of the old city of Tyre. And when he sends his emissaries out, he sends a message and he says, I would like to come in and worship Melkart. Will you let me come in and make an offering? And the people send a a message back and they say, you know what, why don't you just make your offering to the temple of Melkart on, on the homeland? You don't need to come into the island. And then he sends a message back and he says, well, you're going to let me in. I'm coming in one way or another. And they say, well, good luck. And so he says, okay, giddy up, let's do this. And so he literally builds a causeway with buckets of sand. His army goes out there and spends months, over seven months, building a causeway. He eventually gets into Tyre, and he does conquer it, and he sends a lot of people into slavery because they rebelled. And so some people read this oracle of Ezekiel, and they say, on one hand, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get in, but on the other hand, the prophecy is fulfilled. And just be aware and know that I'm in that space where I'm okay with it. Like, I realize that he says Nebuchadnezzar is going to get in and he doesn't. But once again, and I don't know, I'm just wondering here, what if he sees a vision of Tyre getting destroyed and his assumption is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do it because Nebuchadnezzar is the great power of his day. And if you remember our podcast where we talked about Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a similar vision where Perhaps the assumption was that the Scythians were going to be the destructive force, but it turned out to be the Babylonians. And like I said, I'm okay with that. So that's one way to look at it. 
But that being said, what if these chapters on Tyre are coded, kind of the way we read Isaiah? Some scholars look at this and say that this is a code where he's saying one thing, but he's meaning something else. So I'm offering this as a suggestion. There's perhaps another way to read this. We read in verse 2 of chapter 28, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre, thus saith the Lord God. That phrase, the prince of Tyre, that phrase in Hebrew is Nagid, and that word is used for the high priest in the temple or for a leader of Jerusalem. It's not used for foreign rulers anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. And so some scholars look at this and say that this is a key word where he's saying one thing, but he's meaning something else. And so then it gets in more description here. If you go to verse four, with thy wisdom and thine understanding, thou hast gotten the riches, thou hast gotten gold and silver. Verse five, thy great wisdom and thy traffic, hast thou increased thy riches. Skip down to verse 12. Son of man, take a lamentation upon the king of Tyre and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast seen in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. And then it goes through these gems. Now, the Greek translation of this is going to give all the 12 jewels of the Jerusalem high priest, exactly as it's contained in Exodus 28, 17 through 20. So one way to read this is that this prince of Tyre, this Nagid, represents a sacral king in Zion, strengthened and yet cast out. So could this be a symbol for Adam being cast out of the Garden of Eden as the quintessential high priest, as it were? And it says, essentially, that the original Adam we have here was created to fill the earth with knowledge or with glory, and the cherub was created full of wisdom, but the cherub became full of violence. Adam was created to be great, but the cherub's greatness had become greatness in trade and iniquities. That's really what's going on in Tyre. She became wealthy in her trade and trusted in her riches. And so instead of consecrating the holy places, the cherub had defiled them. That's chapter 28, verse 18. And instead of being glorious, they became ash. And so one of the ways we can also see this typologically is as a metaphor for us, We come from the garden of God and we left that glory. We've descended down. And are we going to be like Tyre where we trust in our riches? Because if we do, we'll be brought down into a pit. But if we trust the Lord, we can be lifted up in his beauty. And so that's another way to read it. So with that, let's go to the 33rd chapter and talk about the role of prophets and the watchmen. I love that 33 helps us understand the relationship that God has when he calls a prophet, that he puts a prophet kind of under a rule. Here is what I call the rule of the prophets. This is your guiding rule if you're ever called to be a prophet, but he's giving us the rule so that we understand the ramifications. So verse 2, we begin the rule. When I bring the sword upon a land or any type of danger— If the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. 
He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. In other words, the watchman did his job. The watchman blew the horn and you heard it, but you chose not to listen. Therefore, you own the consequences. You were warned. You didn't choose to follow the warning. That's on you. If you do hear the warning, end of verse 5, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. Now, here's where the rule of the prophet comes in. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, yes, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. There's the rule. So, to a modern-day prophet, if you see danger coming, if your prophetic and seeric eyes see danger coming and you don't warn the people, then that's on you, prophet. I will hold their blood to you. So, I want you to think about the ramifications of this. In the last several months, I have had at least four people approach me deeply concerned And they'll say something like, I heard that a friend of mine bumped into the prophet in the temple and the prophet said, you better get your food storage in place before winter. And these people were panicking because they didn't think they had enough food storage if there's going to be some major disaster. And I told them, I can tell you instantaneously that that rumor is false because that prophet is not following the rule. If that prophet saw danger coming and is secretly telling a few people in the temple, but not blowing the trumpet for the whole church to hear, then the Lord is going to put that on the prophet. Now, I testify that modern-day prophets do not break that rule, and that I can rest assured that if any danger is coming, that a horn will sound, not secretly in the temple between a handful of people, not to his family members, not to his neighbors, but to the whole world, the whole church. Therefore, I think one of the reasons we're being told this is to understand that prophets don't counsel in secret. They don't give secret counsel. They blow the horn long and loud and well in advance. So rest assured that if you haven't heard the blowing of the horn, and we have faithful prophets in our day, then they are not telling you that the sword is coming. And don't believe the rumors. Because the rule is, if they don't blow the horn so that everyone hears it, that's on the prophet. And he's going to confirm this in the next couple of verses. Now, that's the general rule. Watch in verse 7, he, at, he gives that to Ezekiel. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. In other words, Ezekiel, I know you're going to say some scary things, but don't be afraid to warn and say the things that I tell you to say. If you are so afraid of them that you don't blow the trumpet, that's going to be on you. 
Verse 9, nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die as an iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. I am positive that Jacob in the Book of Mormon, Nephi's brother, had been placed under this same rule. Therefore, he ends chapter 1 by saying, If we did not magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. There's the rule of the prophets. And I testify that every one of them today follow that rule. You will be warned. I love that phrase in Doctrine and Covenants 29, verse 8, that if you gather to Zion, you will be prepared in all things against the day when wrath and tribulation are sent out upon the wicked. So now that leads me into 34, which I call the rule of the shepherds. I don't ever anticipate being a prophet, but I do anticipate being a shepherd. So given the rule of the prophets that they must warn or else it's on them, we now get the rule of the shepherds in chapter 34. Now he's going to kind of take this negatively I'm going to see if I can twist it back to positive. He's going to say, this is what you shepherds blew. He's speaking to the past shepherds who didn't take care of the flock. And in this rebuke is a beautiful prophecy of our day, which we'll get to. But let's get to the law of the shepherds. Verse 2 of chapter 34, Ezekiel 34, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So there's the negative. I'm going to twist it. Son of man, give this rule to all the shepherds in Israel. And by that, I mean parents, Sunday school teachers, bishops, young women's leaders, everyone that shepherds other sheep. All of our ministering assignments, all of our callings, we all have a flock that we're to shepherd. And so, Saying it positively, son of man, give this rule to the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy unto them and say unto them. Again, I'm in verse 2, but I'm going to try and turn it positive. The shepherds of Israel should feed the flock, not themselves. That is the rule. The shepherds of Israel shall feed the flock and not themselves. He gives a whole bunch of examples. Let's read the examples to kind of get the gist of what he's trying to say. Verse 3, you eat the fat and you clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened. Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought them which was lost. Now turn all those to positives. What I need to do in my calling, what I need to do with my ministering families, and what I must do with my children is to strengthen them when they are diseased, heal them when they are sick, bind them up when they are broken, bring them again when they are driven away, seek them when they are lost. 
What they did is with force and with cruelty, they ruled them. They exercised unrighteous dominion over their flock. They controlled them. They covered their sins. They exercised vain ambition and pride. All the things that the Lord rebukes in section 121, saying many are called but few are chosen. My job as a shepherd is to feed the flock, to heal them, to give them what they need. Verse 6 Again, the negative, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. My flock was scattered upon all the face and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, my job as a shepherd, my most important responsibility as a parent is to search for and seek after them. There's the rule of the shepherds. When you accept a calling in this church, when you bring children into this world, you accept the rule of the shepherd and you vow to feed them, to seek them, to shelter them, to lift them, bind them up, heal them, succor them. If you don't do that, the Lord will hold you accountable. And so hence we have that prophecy in the Doctrine and Covenants that if parents of Zion don't teach their children, the blood and the sins of the children will be upon the parents. So he says in verse 7, Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Because my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds did feed themselves and did feed my flock. I'm jumping to verse 10. I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. There's the rule. If we don't feed the sheep, he will hold us accountable. Then I love where this goes. Now, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to paint his nature. But at the same time, there's a prophecy here of the Latter-day Saints. See if you can hear both of them. Starting in verse 11, he says, okay, do you know what I'm going to do? Because you let them flee, because you didn't seek them, and now my sheep are in Babylon, and they've been taken by the Assyrians, and some of them are in America. Because my sheep have been scattered, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 11, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. Now, on a personal level, he's saying, if you don't take care of your sheep, I will. I'll hold you accountable, but I'll go after them. And that brings me great comfort for the sheep that if anyone had a shepherd that didn't take care of them, the Lord will take care of that sheep. But what a rebuke to those of us who should have gone after the sheep, who should have cared and taught. If you're teaching your Sunday school class things that entertain you and excite you, you're missing the rule of the shepherd. The quest is to feed them, not to feed yourself. If our callings, if my appointment in the church brings me glory, then I'm missing the rule of the shepherd. My whole commission is to feed the sheep. 
In light of that, hear this counsel from President Packer, Boyd K. Packer. He said, there aren't many places in which a leader can use a person who is struggling for worthiness. Unfortunately, it seems that those few situations in, in which we could use them to offer prayers, to make brief responses, to bear testimony, are almost invariably reserved for the active. For the stake presidency, for the high council, for the bishopric, for the patriarch, for the auxiliary leaders. Indeed, we sometimes go to great lengths to import speakers and participants to the loss of our hungry ones. At a ward sacrament meeting I attended recently, a sister had been invited to sing whose husband was not active in the church. He was, however, at the meeting. The bishop wanted a very special program for this occasion. His first announcement was, Brother X, my first counselor, will give the opening prayer. His second counselor gave the closing prayer. How unfortunate, I thought. The three men in the bishopric struggle with such concern over the spiritually sick and then take the very medicine that would make those people well. Activity, participation, and consume it themselves in front of the needy. Feed the sheep, even if they don't do it as well as you could have done it. Sometimes we hover over those over whom we preside and we tell them how to do their job. Let them do their job. Give them an opportunity to succeed. Let your children succeed. Feed them. Enrich their lives. Lift them up. Even if they mow the lawn and break sprinkler heads in the process, but they're learning and they're growing. Allow them to grow. Feed the sheep. Now, second way of looking at that is a promise of the restoration. Because the shepherds of Israel didn't help save Israel from going into Babylon, when the Lord says, I will seek my sheep, I think one of the things he means is, I will bring them back to the fold in the latter days. Yes, I will bring them back to Jerusalem from Babylon. But there's a very clear reference to our day. Verse 12, I seek out my sheep. I will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Tell me that's not a reference to the apostasy, the cloudy and dark day. I will seek my sheep. Now, see yourself in these verses. Verse 13, I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There they shall lie in good fold and in fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down. Verse 16, I will seek that which was lost. Hence the latter day saints. Hence your children and your grandchildren are going out on missions all over this world. I will seek that which is lost. I will bring them again that which was driven away. I will bind up that which was broken. I will strengthen that which was sick. There's clear prophecy that he's going to bring them back in the latter days. This is our day. We are restored Israel, brought back by the shepherd to now take care of the fold. Now, that leads us right into chapter 36, which is, again, a major prophecy of the restoration in our day, among other things. One of the things chapter 36 emphasizes 
is that God is doing this for his sake, not necessarily that Israel is deserving. So look in chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake. So he he teaches this idea, and I think this is tied into that it's not our own works that save us, it's the Savior, but we receive him. And so this is a message of peace. And like Bryce talked about where the Lord says, I'm going to gather you and I'm going to feed you, that could also be a prophecy to Ezekiel's contemporaries, that they're hoping that they're going to come back. And so we read this in the 36th chapter in verse 8, but ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and ye shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it. And the city shall be inhabited, and the wastes shall be builded. In essence, the waste places of Jerusalem will be built. The Lord says, you're going to go back. Now, he does say in verse 18, I poured my fury upon them, and I, verse 19, scattered them among the heathen, and I judged them. But then he says, I'm going to build you up again. And so in verse 24, he says, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. In fact, in verse 11, Mike, he says, I will do better unto you than at your beginnings, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So not only am I going to bring you back, but I'm going to bring you back in greater glory than we began. Yeah. He's going to sprinkle water on her, on her. That's verse 25. This is indicative of the things that were discussed in the 16th chapter, where he cleanses this daughter that's found. And then he says in verse 26, I'll put a new heart and a new spirit into you, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. That's verse 28. And ye shall be my people and I will be your God. And so chapter 36 of Ezekiel is a really good synopsis of that idea, that the Lord loves them, that he's going to gather them, and they're going to build the wasted cities. That's also verse 33, which leads us into 37. The 37th chapter of Ezekiel is where Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones. And they're very dry. So clearly, this is an army that was defeated, and the defeating army didn't even have the courtesy to bury them. They left their bones there to dry. This is such a beautiful image of so many things, but one of the things he's saying is, this is Israel. Israel is dead right now. Israel was defeated by an enemy, and the enemy left them to dry. Now, I know 37 can be seen as our own individual death and our own individual resurrection. It is a beautiful chapter on resurrection, but I think the spirit of it is the resurrection of Israel. So standing in this valley, which represents his forefathers, that Israel was defeated by their enemies and here lie their dry bones. The Lord asks a question that we ask all of the world, can these bones live? Will Israel ever come back as a glorious people? Did Israel die in Babylon? Did Israel die in Assyria? Will Israel ever come back? Can these bones live? That's what he asks. And then Ezekiel says, I don't know. Thou, Lord, knowest. I don't know. Can Israel ever come back? And the Lord says, I just can picture at this point a big smile on the Lord's face. And I believe he is thinking of you. Are you kidding? Do you think Israel is gone? Wait till you see 
what happens. And then this beautiful description of a resurrection right in front of him. If any of you have lost someone you love, I think you can read these verses and understand that they are going to come back, that everyone we loved will come back, that flesh will come upon them, that sinews will be connected, that bones will start to rattle. It is a beautiful chapter on resurrection, but I think the spirit of it is the resurrection of Israel. This image is really Israel coming back. Can these bones live? Well, prophesy upon these bones, saying to them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Come back. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath upon you, and you will live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, this is just a beautiful moment. As I prophesied, there was a noise and a shaking the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them and the skin covered them above. But there's no breath. You can't just bring the physical bodies back together and have it be life. So he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say unto the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood up upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Can you just picture that? All those dead bones came back to life. Joseph Smith was born, and then a first vision, and then a small gathering in New York, and then a bigger gathering in Ohio and the shaking gets louder. And then there was a gathering, and then we moved to Missouri, and then to Illinois, and then to Salt Lake. Then we started spreading out over all the world. And that noise has gotten louder and louder. That is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is the restored kingdom coming back to prepare for His coming. We are an exceedingly great army. Now, that phrase is going to be used to describe the restoration many times. In Doctrine and Covenants section 5, speaking of that army coming out of the wilderness, verse 14, and to none else will I grant this power to receive this same testimony among this generation, in this the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, ready, clear as the moon, fair as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. That's what Israel is. Israel is an army with banners standing upon her feet. Now, Mike, if we are a restored army, we better have a weapon in our hand, right? We better be given a sword in which we can do the work with. So now the very next thing is the sword. Now notice verse 19. I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. That army is Ephraim initially. And in our right hand is a stick. Yeah. That word in Hebrew has so many different meanings. 
that's really ambiguous because ets can mean tree, it can mean staff, it can mean stick, it can mean wood. My take on it is it's probably all of these things. One of the images of the stick or the staff of Joseph and of Judah is the scepter or right to reign. And remember, Israel's been scattered. And it seems to me that Ezekiel sees a future time when Joseph, which is the head tribe of the Israelites or Ephraim, Joseph will come back. And the Jews and the Israelites will become one nation again. It's almost like this reunification of the tribes coming back together or Heavenly Father putting his family back together. And then another image is this could be a a writing tablet, writings of Joseph, writings of Judah. That's the fulfillment of the record of the Book of Mormon and the record of the Bible becoming one in your hand. And then another image is that the two trees come together, and that image flows in the writings of Paul and in the writings of Jacob, where we talk about the grafting and coming back into the mother tree. So Doctrine and Covenants 27, verse 5, when he talks about the gathering at the wedding feast, he says, I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on earth, with Moroni, whom I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon. And then God himself calls the Book of Mormon the stick of Ephraim. So Doctrine and Covenants 27, verse 9, Moroni restored the Book of Mormon, to whom I have committed the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim. So kind of a cross-reference to say, yes, it can be all of these things, but the Lord clearly referred to one aspect of it being Scripture, the record of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So you've got the Book of Mormon— You've got the idea of a staff or the right to reign. And then another image is that the two trees come together. But I really appreciate Bryce bringing up section 27 because this isn't the only place in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord is going to mention Ezekiel's prophecies. And so one of the things we can also take from Latter-day Revelation is this idea that the Old Testament prophecies are relevant in our day because the Lord refers to them in our time period. And so I think for that reason alone, it would behoove us as Latter-day Saints to be familiar with some of the prophecies of Ezekiel. And it's also not the first time that someone has prophesied of the coming together of Judah and Joseph. Way back, Joseph himself, Joseph of Egypt, as recorded in the brass plates, one of the prophecies given to Joseph of Egypt, verse 12 of 2 Nephi 3, wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write. Now that's the loins of Joseph. And the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write. And that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, that meaning the Book of Mormon, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines and laying down of contentions and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins and bringing them to the knowledge of their fathers in the latter days and also to the knowledge of my covenants. In other words, Ezekiel was not the first prophet to prophesy of the coming together of Judah and Joseph in the latter days. Joseph of Egypt was given a very powerful prophecy about that very thing as well. And I'm positive Ezekiel had the writings of Joseph. And so in concluding this chapter, notice what the Lord says in verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And, you know, I even like in the footnote where the 
people that wrote in the footnotes said, you know, the, the tribes of Judah and Ephraim were traditionally at odds with one another. And we've talked about that extensively as we've been through the king's narrative. But I like verse 22 in the sense of the one king being Jesus and the Lord fixing broken things. The Lord's goal is to put back things that are broken. And so the image of the bones that come back to life, that have the breath of life breathed into them, is a beautiful image of the house of Judah and the house of Ephraim coming back together. And we see this over and over again, the reunification of broken things. For example, I mean, I don't take this literally, but we have the metaphor of the rib being taken from Adam and he's separated from his rib and the rib becomes Eve, but then he's to cleave to her and become one flesh. The unification of Adam and Eve is the coming back together again. And the the breaking or ripping apart of Joseph from his family in Genesis, and then the reunification at the end is another image. Just like we have here, the tearing apart of the house of Israel into the two kingdoms will be put back together at the end of Ezekiel 37. Okay, so with that, chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel are apocalyptic visions, and the enemies of Israel are coming against her, and they're going to be cast in the names of Gog and Magog. That's what we read in the first part of chapter 38. Big picture in this chapter is we have this great army coming from the north in the sixth verse, and they're the nations from the table of nations early on in Genesis. And so the author of Ezekiel 38 is assuming that you understand who those nations are. But to be short in speaking, they're the nations of the world. And they're coming in the latter years in verse 8 from the north like a storm, verse 9. And they go into the unwalled villages. And their motive in verse 12 is to take a spoil. They come against the nation of Israel from the north, but then the Lord defends Israel. And that's verse 22. I will plead against him with pestilence and blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. And then the Lord says it again in the 39th chapter where he says this, verse six, I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord, and I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And so he does, he defends them. Now in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 29, the Lord talks about this. And we read in verse 21 that these things were spoken by the mouth of Ezekiel the prophet, and the Lord says, These things have not come to pass, but surely must as I live, saith the Lord. And so that's section 29, where the Lord basically references this and says, these things are going to happen. And so these things can be read lots of ways. They can be read typologically. They can certainly be read literally. But I think the purpose of these chapters, the Lord tells us what the purpose is. And the purpose is in 39 verse 7, that we may know that he is the God of Israel. He says it again in verse 13. He says it in 22, 23, and 28. Big picture, that's the message, that they may know that I am the God of Israel. And to me, when I read that, when I see something repeated five times in chapter 39, the purpose of these signs, I think that's the important thing that we can take away. And my take on chapter 39 is this, I think we'll know it when it happens, and I think trying to speculate on some of the specifics 
can cause problems. And so I just think for the podcast, I'm just going to talk about the purpose where the Lord says, hey, I want you guys to know this stuff was prophesied of. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says to Joseph Smith, oh, by the way, the book of Ezekiel is still relevant to us today. So with that in mind, we're going to go towards the end of the book of Ezekiel where there's a shift. It's a different apocalyptic vision. This time it's of the future. So from 40 to 48, we're going to shift into this beautiful view of the temple. Do you remember when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're the ones that came back from Babylon and start rebuilding the temple? And do you remember there were several that were old enough to have seen the destruction of the first temple? And when they start laying the foundation of the second temple, they just wept that it was being rebuilt. That's the spirit of these latter chapters of Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived in the day when the temple was slaughtered, and that must have been the blow of all blows to take out that building that so many of them loved so deeply, and it's gone. And then Ezekiel has this incredible vision of the temple coming back. Now, I believe he's seeing two temples simultaneously. I think he's seeing the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem that the captivity is over, and that we are rebuilding that temple that he loved. But I also believe he's seen a modern-day temple. He's seen the restoration of temple work in our day and the healing that will come. So see both temples as he describes the temple he sees in vision. Yeah. So these chapters are in the 25th year of Ezekiel's exile in about 573 BC, and There's nothing else like this in the Old Testament. We have Ezekiel, who has a guide, who takes him on a detailed tour of the temple in Jerusalem. And so the first part is going to talk about the temple complex and how it's measured and how we go from the east gate to the outer court. And that's going to kind of encapsulate chapters 40 through 42, verse 20. And then Ezekiel is brought to the gate facing east, from which he saw the glory of God approaching the temple. So if you remember, we talked about earlier in the podcast, how the kavod, the glory of God went east. Well, now it's coming back. And I think that is, like Bryce said, indicative of the house of Israel coming back and building the temple. Now know that when you read this stuff, it's going to describe temple ordinances as it occurred anciently. And so I think we need to remember that as we read this, the Lord is speaking to these people according to their language. And so Kent Jackson wrote this, and I think this is really important as we try to like frame these chapters in our context. This is what Kent Jackson says. He says, In this vision, Ezekiel taught ancient Jews transcendent millennial things by using images drawn from their time and their experience. The design purpose and ordinances of modern temples would have made no sense to them, just as they make no sense to Jews and other Christians today. The real millennial temple will be much different from its visionary symbol contained in this text, more glorious and with a more profound purpose. In it, Worthy saints will enter into covenants and participate in sacred ordinances, all designed to help them prepare to enter the presence of the Lord in the highest degree of glory. So now, in the context of this, 
Ezekiel is going to be experiencing an apocalyptic vision in which he sees the glory of God come back to the temple. And so as he goes into this visionary experience in the 43rd chapter, he's taken on a tour of the altar. And then in the 44th chapter, it's a very peculiar passage where we read that only the sons of Zadok would be allowed to enter into the sanctuary. And big picture, we've talked about this before, there's tension in the history of Israel over who has authority to officiate. And so in this 44th fourth chapter, as a descendant of Zadok, Ezekiel is denigrating the Levites and basically saying, no, you guys are our servants and the house of Zadok, we are the ones that are to officiate in the temple. And then after that 44th chapter, we learn in some detail the offerings of the holy days that would be observed in Ezekiel's day. And everything was according to the plan of God. I mean, we read that in the 45th chapter all the way to chapter 46. And then we have this new scene where a vision is open to him and a guide takes him to the entrance of the temple. And now, in my estimation, we're getting to what I call the cool part, where he sees water flowing from underneath the threshold towards the east. Now, remember that word for prophet, Navi, literally means to bubble up. And the image I want you to have is you're in the Holy of Holies standing on the threshing floor and underneath it is the waters, the glorious clean spring that comes up. And so what is a Navi? What is a prophet? He's bubbling up with God's revelatory strength, standing at the spring. And Ezekiel is going to see this image of water and a tree. There's a tree. If you remember First Nephi, we're all coming towards the tree. And Bryce and I have talked about this a lot, how the first temple had a tree in the Holy of Holies, which was indicative of God, the love of God, perhaps even God's consort, Heavenly Mother. That image of a tree is also going to be in the book of Revelation. John is going to put the tree in the Holy of Holies. And Ezekiel is going to see this image of water and a tree with the ability for it to heal the nations. And so he goes in this vision where he sees the water flow and it comes up to his ankles and then his waist. And then it's enough to swim in and it continues to flow eastward into the dead sea and it heals everything that it touches. And there's a beautiful quote by Howard W. Hunter where he says, everything Jesus touches lives. And so this water touches everything and everything it touches lives. And I just want to read this in 47 where he sees the beautiful image of the tree. Chapter 47, verse 12. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to the months, because their waters issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. And a good cross-reference of Ezekiel 47, verse 12, is Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. And that's where John sees in the Holy of Holies the image of a tree next to the spring that has the power to heal the nations. And I think the image of a tree is a beautiful image also of Jesus Christ. He is the tree that has the power to heal us. Now, the rest of this is all about the land and the positions that the tribes hold. And it gets into the weeds as to who lives where. And I wouldn't focus on that in a lesson, but it's good to know that that was important. You see, the Israelites viewed their covenant with God as tied to the land and that they were stewards of it. And I think we can take that big picture and say, okay, maybe I don't own land, 
but the things that I've been given stewardship over are also sacred and they're gifts from God. And so I think we can read it that way. But I like to end with that image of the water healing everything, and it's coming out from underneath the Holy of Holies in the temple and flowing to fix broken things. I think chapter 47 is one of the absolute most beautiful insights into the power of the temple to heal. I can just picture this, standing in front of the temple, standing at the door, and water's flowing out. Now, almost without fail, every temple in this church, somewhere near the entrance, there is a fountain of water. All over. I love when I go to the temple, I always stop at the fountain of water. My particular temple is the Ochre Mountain Temple, and there happens to be an absolute beautiful little square pool of water right by the entrance where I walk out. And even in the dead of winter, I will just put my hand in that water and think of Ezekiel 47. Because as soon as you build a temple, the water starts to flow. As it goes out, it gets deeper and its healing powers grow. A thousand cubits out, it's now to his ankles. A thousand cubits out to his knees, and then to his loins, and then it's a river to swim in. And those waters heal. I think there's some beautiful prophecies here. If this is the temple at Jerusalem, and it's flowing east, it will flow into the Dead Sea, where there is no life. Do you see the imagery that temple waters flow into the dead sea and bring life and healing? Clearly, that is a reference to temple ordinances flowing into the dead sea of our world, which is the spirit world, and bringing healing to the dead. The image here is that temple waters can heal even the things that are the most dead, It can heal marriages, temples can heal families, temples can heal people, and I personally believe temples can heal nations. I'm fascinated at a prophecy that Ezra Taft Benson uttered at the dedication of the Atlanta, Georgia Temple. He said the following, Let us make the temple a sacred home away from our eternal home. This temple will be a standing witness that the power of God can stay the powers of evil in our midst. Many parents in and out of the church are concerned about protection against a cascading avalanche of wickedness which threatens to engulf Christian principles. There is a power associated with the ordinances of heaven, even the power of godliness, which can and will thwart the forces of evil if we will be worthy of those sacred blessings. Now listen to this prophecy. This community will be protected. Our families will be protected. Our children will be safeguarded as we live the gospel, visit the temple, and live close to the Lord. If that temple water flows out into the community around it and heals the community, then what will it do to our families? Now, I'm about to tell a story that I take full responsibility for. I do not represent Mike in telling this story. I do not represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is not the official position of the church. I take full responsibility for my opinion, and I recognize there's a lot of people who are going to disagree with it, but I feel very strongly that this is true. Allow me to tell a story. There were four nations that conquered Germany at the conclusion of World War II. Three came from the West, Great Britain, France, and the United States, and one came from the East, Russia. 
when they conquered Germany, they were not going to make the same mistake they made at the conclusion of World War I and walk away and leave it in ruins. They were going to rebuild Germany. But what are the chances those four nations can agree on how to rebuild Germany? There's no way they could. So they decided to split Germany up. Each nation would take a piece. Well, France, Great Britain, and the United States didn't have a single problem unifying their peace and making a democratic country. And that was known for many decades as West Germany, where it was modeled after the freedoms of the Western countries. The Soviet Union, they imposed a government after their style of communism, and they built a wall around their peace. And that became known as East Germany. Now, there were members of the church in East Germany at the conclusion of World War II, inside a wall. Now, as they grow up and have children and their children marry, they want to be sealed in the temple. So they begin to petition the East German government for permission to leave the country and be sealed at the closest temple and come home. The East German government said, no, we will not let you out. That wall kept them in. The church began to petition the government of East Germany. Please let our people leave. These temple ordinances are very important. They will come back. Then East Germany said something I don't think anyone expected them to say. Why don't you just build a temple here in East Germany? I would love to have been on the other end of that phone call when they said that. So we built a temple within that wall. We built a temple in East Germany. And as soon as we did, the water started to flow. It was a trickle at first. The more it flowed, the deeper it got. After time, that water hit that wall. And it is my testimony that it healed that country. I know there were other factors. I'm not ignorant. But I truly believe that building that temple and letting that water flow within that country healed that country. I testify of the promise given in Ezekiel 47 verse 9. It shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, and they shall be healed. And everything shall live, whether the river cometh. Temple water brings healing. That is why I stick my hand in that fountain every single time and pray that the temple water will heal me and my family, my nation, my community, and everyone that I love. May you come to know the healing power of temple water that Mike and I stand as witnesses for and of the God who does the healing as we keep the covenants we make in his house. And with that, we thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we talk about the book of Daniel. Make it a great week. 
Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.